chapter 15. Um, there is a small chance that we might finish Romans tonight. <laughs> and uh, I believe that our next study, I, I'm very, I really want to, I, I, my plan is just let you into my mind a little bit. Um, as I was going to skip First and Second Corinthians because Bobby just finished them and go into Galatians, but I think what I'm going to do is take a little detour through the Book of Revelation uh, and then come back to Galatians and, and continue on through there. So, uh, Lord willing, and um, that will be our next move from here. We'll, we'll have a study in the Book of Revelation. So I, I know that the time is short, and uh, these things are upon us. Things are happening so quickly. So invite people out to that. You know, invite your neighbors, invite your friends. Say, hey, we're studying Revelation at church. We're, we're looking at what the Bible says is going to happen in the last days. Uh, so come out and hear it. And um, you'd be surprised. A lot of people get scared. It's the book of Revelation. It's so hard. It's really not that hard. Uh, you know, you just look at it and, and see what it says. I mean, when you were in school and uh, you needed to know the answers, what did you do? You turned to the back of the book, right? <laughs> very practical. So with that, though, we're in Romans tonight, chapter 15. We left off uh, right around verse 7. Perhaps you heard the story of the man who was driving across the Bay Bridge in San Francisco, you know, the Golden Gate Bridge, that famous bridge. And as he was driving, he saw a man that was standing right on the edge of the bridge looking, you know, ominously suicidal as he passed. And so he screeched on the brakes and he pulled off and he quickly went out to the man and, and he shouted to him and he said, wait, jump, don't do, don't jump, don't jump. It's not worth it, he said to the man. And the man said, no, I'm, I'm going to jump, I'm going to end it all right now. And the man looked at him being a Christian and he said, well, do you know Jesus Christ personally? And the guy said, yeah, I know Jesus Christ personally. He goes, oh, great. He goes, me too. I know Jesus Christ. He goes, what church do you go to? And the guy says, I, I go to a Baptist church. And the guy goes, wow. He goes, I'm a Baptist too. That's incredible. Well, are you an American Baptist or a Southern Baptist? And the guy said, I'm an American Baptist. And he said, wow, wouldn't you know it? I'm an American Baptist too. What a small world. Are you an American Baptist Great Lakes region? Or are you an American Baptist Southern Conference? And the man said, Great Lakes region. And he goes, would you believe it? And he said, Conference of 1812? Or the Reformation of 1856? And he said, the Conference of 1812. And then he pushed him off the bridge and he said, burn in hell, heretic! <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? The amount of differences that we can find as Christians. Things to argue about, conflicts that we can conjure up and dwell upon. And just ways that we can divide the church and argue amongst ourselves. Well, this is where Paul is at in this section of the book of Romans as he begins to wind down. 
And for as much as there was great conflict in the churches in his time between personal convictions concerning meats and days, at the heart of the issue was the great divide between the Jews and the Gentiles. That was where this divide was rooted from. Jews more or less despised the Gentiles. They were taught in their synagogues, in their culture, that the Gentiles were fit for nothing more than the flames of hell, that they were the fuel that would keep hell hot. What they referred to them as was dogs. The Gentiles were nothing more than dogs. You would esteem your pet dog more than you would esteem a Gentile. And it was a shame for any Jew to ever eat with a Gentile. They were completely separate. They were looked upon as a lower class, despised by the Jews. Well, in return, the Gentiles, they also despised the Jews. The anti-Semitic sentiment that we feel in the world today was similar in those times then. People just have always kind of had this sentiment towards the Jews, that they have that better than everybody else kind of a thing. And it was the sentiment of the Gentiles towards the Jews in those days. And yet the problem was, and the problem that was there in the churches, due to this, this prejudice between these two groups, is that Jesus Christ came to unite the two in this new body that is now called the church. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 18, the Apostle Paul explains it this way. He says, Wherefore, remember, speaking to a Gentile church, he said that you, being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, or non-Jews, by that which is called the circumcision, in the flesh made by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off, are now made nigh by the blood of Christ. For He, Jesus, is our peace, who hath made both one, that is, the Jews and the Gentiles. And He hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in His flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in Himself of two one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both Jews and Gentiles unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh, for through him, that is Christ, we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father." Jesus came that the Jews and the Gentiles, these two very separate entities, these two very aggressive, you know, people, would be now made one in the cross by the blood of Christ, that they would become one in the body. And this is a conflict, this was a problem, this caused all sorts of friction, being that the background of the two sides was so very different. Well, how did Jesus do this? How did Jesus make these two one? How did Jesus employ this, this strategy that he has? 
Well, in verse 8, it says that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers. Jesus came to the Jews, he's telling us, as a Jew. And he submitted himself to all the customs of the Jews. He gave himself to their customs so as to identify with them and also to demonstrate love toward them and also to offer salvation to them. It says that he became, he was a minister of the circumcision. Now, we know from our other studies that that's another name for the Jews. But Paul could have used the word Israel here. He could have just used the word Jews, that Jesus was born as a Jew or as a descendant of Abraham. But he uses this word circumcision. And I think it's on purpose. It's strategically placed there. Why? Because it speaks of the customs. It speaks of the traditions. It speaks of the things that they did that made them Jews as they were. And that Jesus came as a minister or a servant or a slave to the customs, if you would. He submitted himself, though he was God. And though he didn't have to submit to anything being God, yet he came as one of them and he submitted himself to the customs that they employed. He was circumcised the eighth day. He went through all of the things that a young Jewish boy would go through. And he even, on the day that he came down to the Jordan River to be baptized, acknowledged John the Baptist saying to him that I should be baptized by you and you want me to baptize you? And Jesus said, let it be so for it's necessary to fulfill all righteousness. He gave himself to every custom because he was coming as a Jew to the Jews to reach the Jews. He was, and, and that's how it was prophesied that he would come. In, in verse 3, if you skim back to the verse 3 of chapter 15, it says that even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproach thee fell on me. He came to the Jews. He wasn't out for himself, but he was extending beyond to try to reach these people. And we know that he didn't have to leave heaven. He didn't have to be born a Jew. He didn't have to be baptized. But he did it for love's sake. And that Paul's point in all of this that he's saying that we talked about last week and what he's still talking about now is that basically the love card trumps the liberty card. Jesus had the liberty to not become a Jew. He had the liberty to not submit to their customs because he was God. What need did he have to cut away the flesh? What need did he have to fulfill the law? He was perfection. But yet, the love card, for the sake of love, it trumped liberty. That's where Paul's talking about. Now, Paul's writing to a Gentile church, and he's given them the subtle and yet clear exhortation to be sensitive to the Jew, just as Jesus, our example, was. He, he starts by saying, of course, that Jesus, as a Jew, submitted to the customs of the Jews. That's what he talks about in verses 3 through 8. But then he goes on in verses 9 through 13 to say that salvation is also given to the Gentiles and that that is according to the scriptures, that that was according to plan. Verse 9, it says that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written, for this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles and sing unto thy name. And again he saith, rejoice ye Gentiles with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all ye his Gentiles, and laud him, all ye people. 
And again, Isaiah saith, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he that shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles trust. And now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. He, he goes here and he dips into the Old Testament scripture. And he says that this was God's plan all along that he was going to save the Gentiles. That there would be this body called the church that there would no longer be Jew and Gentile, but they would be one in Christ. And that he came to the Jews as a Jew to reach the Jews, but also with the intention of reaching the Gentiles and then uniting the two in one. So Jesus was a Jew. He came to the Jews. However, salvation is given to the Gentiles and thus you have this conflict. And so Paul exhorts the Gentiles and he says that they have a responsibility to demonstrate love and sensitivity toward the Jew in verse 14. Paul says, and I myself also am persuaded of you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able also to admonish one another. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written the more boldly unto you in some sort as putting you in mind because of the grace that is given to me of God. Now, to understand what he's talking about, you really have to reach back into our last study, Romans chapter uh, 14 and on through the first seven verses of chapter 15, when he's talking about these issues of law versus liberty. Is it right to eat meats that have been sacrificed to idols or is it a sin? Is it a sacrilege in that sense? It doesn't matter what day we worship God on or is every day alike in the eyes of God. Do we have to keep the Sabbath as Christians, Gentiles, or is the Sabbath something that is fulfilled in Christ and it's a life rather than a day? And these questions, and we talked about it in New Testament terms of gray areas, Christian liberties, tobacco, a glass of wine, you know, uh, the way we dress, where we go, the things that we read and watch, you know, the music that we listen to. Where do these things weigh? And that's what Paul is saying as he talks to these Gentiles who he's alluding to as the stronger group. He says, you've got to be sensitive to the weakness of the Jews. So they have a responsibility to demonstrate love towards the Jew. And then Paul chimes in in verse 16 by saying that he understands their position because he, as a Jew, is called to reach the Gentiles. Verse 16. He says that I should be the minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable, being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. He says that it's because of the grace that's been given to him of God that he's able to be a Jew that is called to reach the Gentiles. Now think about what that would be like for Paul. His whole life having it ingrained into him that the Gentiles were good for nothing but hellfire. And then to have God tap him on the shoulder and say, Paul, I'm going to send you to reach the Gentiles. And Paul here describing the amount of grace that that took as God spoke to him and told him that, that God could supernaturally give him a love for a group of people his whole life. He was trained to hate. How do you deal with these divisions? 
How do you deal with it when there's a group of people that you just can't see eye to eye with in the things of Christ? When there's a group of people that you've been trained your whole life to despise, and yet now you notice that there's a whole section of the church that's filled with them. The way they dress, the way they talk, I just can't understand them. The way they are, the things they like, it just grinds on me. How does it work? What do I do? Well, Paul says, I understand I'm a Jew called to the Gentiles. And all of this, he's saying just to ask them, please, for the sake of Jesus, be sensitive to the Jew. Now, for you and me, as we read this, we say, well, we don't have that issue so much. You know, we don't look down upon the Jews. We look up to them. We're their debtors. And and we don't find that there's this great conflict between, you know, Jews that are saved in Christ and us. So what is the issue? Why is this here? What does it say to us? Well, the issue for us is not anti-Semitism, but rather it's anti-sectarianism. You know, like the... American Baptist Great Lakes 1812 conference versus, you know, it's not anti-Semitism, it's anti-sectarianism. How do we deal with differences in the body of Christ? Now, let me ask you a series of questions. I have three questions I want to ask you. And what is the correct answer to these things? How would you deal with it if you found yourself in one of these situations? What's the right thing to do? You are having a conversation with someone, maybe in the church or maybe someone that you know. And over the course of the conversation, you know, it comes up that they are Christians, you are Christians. And they ask you the question, what are you going to give up for Lent? What do you do? What's the right thing to do? Now, I'm not, I don't know. I don't know what the right answer is necessarily. But if we were to take what Paul's saying to us here about being strong and being weak, and for the sake of love, trying to reach the weaker, what's the right thing to do? Well, I know that my natural tendency would be to throw down the gloves and get ready to have a theological argument. That would be what I'd want to do. Well, I can prove to you that Lent is stupid. That would be my natural tendency. That, 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 that it's all, no, but what would love do? Love would say, gum. <laughs> You know, just make something up, you know? Why? Because listen, listen, what's what's the thing? Do I want to build a wall and and say, well, I just want to make it clear at this point that I'm different than you. We've established that we're both Christians, that we both believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior, that we're trusted Him for our salvation. But at this point, you said a word that doesn't jive with my Christian vocabulary, so let's put up a wall here or build a fence, and you can have your side of the Christian fence and I'll have my side of the Christian fence, and we'll just make it crystal clear where this line is so that we can you know, understand each other in that sense. Does that make sense? Or does love build a bridge? In some way seeking to demonstrate Christ in a way that would maybe practically reach them or maybe even edify them or encourage them in their walk with Christ rather than tearing down because you might know more. Maybe you're sitting next to someone in church and they see you chewing gum. And they nudge you gently and they say, hey, um, you forgot to spit out your gum. It's church. You're chewing gum in church. Do you realize you're chewing gum in church? Well, what do you do? Do you blow a bubble? (laughs) I have the liberty to chew my gum in church. Or do you, for love's sake, say, oh, goodness, I'm so sorry, I forgot. You know, and then carefully take it out and put it under the seat, you know. (laughs) Like everybody else does. But what do you do? 
Do you go up in arms or do you realize sensitively that there's maybe they have a conviction about that and that what you're doing stumbles them? They don't understand. Maybe you're on the worship team. Maybe you're serving in the Sunday school. Maybe you're working in the solid ground. And you come to church and maybe a day or two goes by, but then it comes back to you that someone was saying something about the way that you were dressed, the clothes that you were wearing, that they seemed somewhat suggestive or inappropriate for the circumstance or the situation that you were in. Well, what happens within your heart? Do you have a feeling of resentment? Well, who are they to judge me? Well, who are they to say that what I'm doing is suggestive or seductive or wrong? Who are they? Is there resentment or is there remorse? Oh, you mean I, I, I distracted someone from the worship of God? Or I made someone feel uncomfortable leaving their child in a Sunday school setting? Or I made them uncomfortable as they were sitting in the solid ground? Is there resentment or is there remorse? Well, the answer is, is it liberty or is it love? Which is more important? That's the question that Paul is putting before the Roman church. And he's saying it's got to be love. The opportunity for division, fence building within the body of Christ is endless. We can divide about anything. We can argue over everything. But if we let love lead, then the result can be power and salvation rather than division and wall building. Now listen, there is a time to throw off the gloves. There is a time when it's necessary perhaps to say something. Paul would write to the Galatian church and he would change his tone. He would talk about a similar situation, but he would say things to them absolutely differently. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul writes and he says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ had made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. See, to the Romans, Paul is saying, be sensitive to the Jew. But to the Galatians, Paul is saying, stand up against the Jew. Well, which is it, Paul? Why are you saying this? Because there are times when it's an issue of love or liberty. But then it's another time when someone's trying to bring you into legalism. And if someone's trying to bring you into legalism to shake the foundation of your Christian faith and say that the grace of God and the blood of Jesus Christ isn't enough for your salvation, but that you also need to add to that a particular style of worship or a particular day that you worship on. Paul says in that instance, then you stand fast in the liberty. For Paul would go on to say that if you are circumcised, if you submit to the law and say that I need this law in order to be saved, then he says, then your salvation is in vain. Christ is dead for nothing. So there is a time. Now, listen, if someone told me about my gum, the way I dress, you know, fine. You know, I'm very happy to lay those things down. But if someone came in here and said, you know, you guys are worshiping on the wrong day. You really need to have your church service on Saturday because on Sunday you are worshiping the sun God, sun God, Ra. You know, I would say, well, listen, on Saturday, you're worshiping Saturn, you know. <laughs> so, so, you know, take your pick, you know, that's not what it's about. You know, if someone's trying to bring you under religious bondage and saying that you need to conform to these religious standards in order to call yourself valid. At that point, you stand up and you say, well, no, you, you're misinterpreting. You're not understanding the grace of God, the blood of Christ and all that that means. If someone says it's sacrilegious for you to use drums in your worship service. 
I would say, well, I'm glad it's fine with me that you hold those convictions. There are plenty of churches in the Hudson Valley that don't use drums in their service. You'd probably fit in very well at one of those churches. But here we feel that it is an expression where people, through their rhythm and through their gifts and their talents, are offering praise to God, and they will not be told that it's an inappropriate behavior for them to do so. And so there is a time when it's an issue of liberty versus charity, love. But then there's other times when it's an issue of legalism versus liberty. And there's a time to make a stand. So Paul writes to these Jews and he says, be sensitive to these things that you're not building fences and neglecting love for stupid reasons. Well, Paul goes on, he lets us in on a little secret. He tells us next what I believe is the key the key to keeping the walls down. What's the key to keeping these petty arguments and these small dissensions from dividing the body of Christ? The answer is that you keep the focus on saving souls. Look at verse 17. He says, I have therefore whereof I may glory through Jesus Christ in those things which pertain to God. For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ hath not wrought by me, to make the Gentiles obedient by word and deed, through mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Holy, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Yea, so have I strived to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build upon another man's foundation. But as it is written, to whom he was not spoken of, they shall see, and they that have not heard shall understand, for which cause I have been much hindered from coming to you. Paul's focus, Paul's drive, Paul's ministry was centered upon preaching the gospel of Christ in any region that he could. And I have found, and perhaps you have seen too, that this one thing keeps the division, the divisiveness in the body of Christ to a very small level. The story is told of a man who was driving through the fields of Iowa, you know, the plains, and, and it was in the early spring. And as he drove through, he saw the farmers there, and they were building fences to separate the fields and make distinction upon whose crops were whose. And this man was distracted by these fences. He was expecting to see long flowing plains of early spring crops. And those flowing plains were interrupted by these fences. And so he pulled over and he talked to one of the farmers that was there building fences. And he said to the farmer, he said, hey, why are you building these fences? It's distracting from the beauty. These fences are destroying the beauty. And the farmer quickly replied and he said, only till the crop grows. See, once the crop grows, you don't see the division anymore. Once it's harvest time, and it's not any longer about whose field is what, but now it's time to pull in the harvest, you don't even see the fences. You ever notice at a Billy Graham crusade or a harvest crusade that behind the minister, behind the pulpit, you'll have Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, you know, uh, all kinds of different people, and they've all come together, and they've laid all of their differences and their arguments aside for one reason. What is it? To win souls. Salvation. The winning of the lost. Bringing people to the place where they can experience salvation through Jesus Christ. Where the two are made one. Where the enmity of commandments and laws and ordinances is broken down. And there's two being made one in Christ as salvation goes forth. And people are born again. 
When it comes to salvation, the barriers seem to disappear. It's interesting, uh, you know, to see that here. And uh, Paul explains it. This is the cure for the division that we see within the body of Christ. Keep the focus on the main thing. Someone said one time, keep the main thing, the main thing, and don't worry about who's doing what that might be offensive. I remember in, uh, well, in Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church and he said this. He says in verse 15, he says, Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. He says, what then? Notwithstanding, every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. See, that's the attitude that we're to have. We say, well, they're not doing it right over there. They're teaching something wrong. They're not correct in their doctrinal stance. They have a tendency towards legalism, looking at all the fences, all the barriers. Paul would look in and he would say, listen, is Christ being preached? Is the gospel being presented? Is the truth of salvation being offered to lost souls that are headed for a Christless eternity? Paul says, I rejoice in that. I remember as an early, uh, you know, experience in my Christian faith, you know, those fighting years when I had the uh, excitement of early Christian zeal. And there was a, a youth pastor up in the North Country, and he was talking about a Methodist church in his town that had a woman pastor. And how that God was really moving there. And that people were getting saved, and that there was just a real work of the Spirit. And as soon as he said it was a woman pastor, I, 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 pull, I threw off the gloves. And, you know, in that false humility way, I kind of leaned forward a little bit and I said, and what do you think about that, the woman pastor? And I was expecting, I didn't know what was going to come of it, you know, but I had my scriptures ready in my mind. I was building my cachet of bullets. I was going to shoot out there as he began to talk about this. And I was thinking to myself, revival in that church. I was messed up. But, you know, he shut me up with his first sentence. Because he quoted this verse here in Philippians. He said, you know, Paul said that there were some that preached Christ for this reason and some that preached Christ for that reason. And he said, but Paul rejoiced that Christ was preached at all. And he said, I know what the Bible says about a woman pastor. He says, I know what Timothy said there. But he said, God's moving in that church and people are getting saved. And he said, if God's going to use a woman in that church and people are going to get saved, then I'm going to say amen. And you know, I could say nothing to that. I sat down, took a drink. Because he's right. And that's what Paul's saying here. It's not about who believes water, who practices water, who's right or who's wrong. Paul says, I have strived to preach the gospel because I want to see people saved. And it's amazing how when that's your focus, the other things kind of fade off into the background. They just don't seem to matter as much. But he also, in this short little section here, gives us some insight into his strategies for winning souls. A lot of people ask the question, they say, well, how do you, how do you share Christ? How do you share the gospel with someone? Well, Paul, in just these couple of verses, gives us some very practical tips here on how he did it and things that, that we could apply to our own lives as well. 
The first thing that we see right there in verse 16 is that he had an expectation that as he stepped out and shared, that God was going to move and use him and that it was going to be productive. Look again at verse 16. Paul says that I should be the minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable, being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. He lets us kind of see part of his mentality here. The way he looked at it spiritually, the fact that he was called to share the gospel with these Gentiles. He said that it was a calling that God had given to him to minister to them. And he said that the offering up of them would be acceptable and that it was sanctified by the Holy Ghost. He knew that he was called to minister the gospel. Therefore, he expected God to move as he did it. Very logical, right? Well, that's amazing because we've all been called with the same exact calling. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, Jesus said the last words before he ascended. He said, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. He says, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5, the Apostle Paul wrote to his son in the faith, Timothy, and he charged him, he said, do the work of the evangelist. Do the work of the evangelist. Make full proof of your ministry. Share the gospel with the people that you come in contact with. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, Paul would write to the church at Corinth, and he would say, to wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and he hath committed unto us, listen again, he hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. That he has committed to us this word of reconciliation. He has called us, church, to bear this message, the light of this gospel, and to bring it to those that are lost. Now, if God has given us that calling, if he's placed that title upon us, that we're the evangelist, we're the ambassador, the one that's going to bring forth this message, then that gives us the right to expect that God's going to use us as we step out and share He's going to back up the thing that he's called us to do. He's going to make it productive. And Paul alludes also in this verse to the fact that he prayed. He talks about how it was the offering up of the Gentiles, that he would pray for them. He would offer it up to God and he would ask God to save them. He would beg God for their salvation. And then he would expect that as he shared with them, that they would get saved. And they did. So the first thing is that he expected God to move. The second thing is that he prayed that God would move. The third thing we see in verse 18 is that he spoke what was real and what was experienced by him. That the thing that Paul shared when he talked to the Gentiles was what was real in his own life. He says, for I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ hath not wrought by me to make the Gentiles obedient by word and deed. The implication, of course, is that what he spoke is what was real to him. He told them what God was doing in his life and what God was doing with his life. That was what was alive to Paul. 
See, it's something when we share a cute story or a sentimental, you know, uh, you know, segment with someone about something that we heard or a testimony that someone else has. That's something. But when we can go to someone who's lost and we can say, listen, I know the true and the living God. And this is how he's real to me. And this is what he's doing in my life. And this is how I experience his presence in a practical way daily. And this is how he leads me and guides my steps. This is what I used to be. And this is what he's making me. And this is real transformation that's taking place in my life. And this is how he's using me. He's making my life productive and fruitful. When you share about that, that is real. That's powerful. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, they had all the knowledge in the world and it profited them nothing. But there was a blind, common man in Israel who was touched by Jesus. His eyes were healed. And the one sentence that he could share about Jesus Christ is he said, I once was blind and now I see. And that one sentence did more to impact the lives of the people in that place than all the ministry of all the Pharisees and Sadducees that had all the knowledge in the world. What is Jesus Christ doing in your life? Share it with people. Tell them about the reality. If you don't have a reality with Christ, then you've got nothing to give away. But if you do, God will use you. And that's what Paul says. I don't speak about what's not real to me, but I do speak about what is. The fourth thing that he tells us there in verse 19 is that he relied upon the power of the Spirit of God to do the work. Verse 19, he says, through mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about unto Alert, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Many people think, well, I don't know enough to share Christ. I'm not, I, have, I'm not, I don't have enough experience. I, don't, I won't be able to answer their questions. Paul said, that, that's irrelevant, because I'm not dependent upon what I know. And I'm not trying to do it in my own strength. He says, but I'm dependent upon the Spirit of God, that it's going to be God working through me. I can't tell you how many times I've seen this in my own life, where I'll share with someone and and I'll give them knowledge because that's, that's me. You know, that's just the way I am. I remember things, you know, so I'll share scripture and I'll, you know, draw little diagrams about salvation and, you know, and I'll map it out and people go, yeah, yeah, I get it. And I'll explain it and I'll think to myself, they're really getting it. They're really getting it. And then I'll say, do you want to know Jesus? And they'll be like, I'm not ready yet. And I'll just say, okay, well, it's a seed, you know, it's whatever. And then I'll watch someone else go up. And I've seen this so many times, same situation, same day. And they'll go up to him and just fumble through their words, not really make any sense in the things that they share. And I'm sitting there going, don't say that, you know. I remember one time this guy was talking about how, oh, we know the Bible's true because, and he goes, because there's less straw in the, in the, in the stone that's way up at the top of the pyramids because the, that, because the, and I was, he, he'd made no sense. And I was like, how do you expect someone's going to get saved? And he said, you just need to give your life to Christ. And I said, okay, I'm ready. And he got saved. And I thought, this is this not fair. You know, he uses the foolish things to confound the wise. Well, that was my seed. You just reaped what I planted, you know, kind of thing, you know. Why? Because it's not up to you. It's not about what you know. It's not about what you say. It's about the power of the Spirit of God working in your life according as He says that He will as you just simply share Jesus Christ to someone. So Paul relied upon the Holy Spirit of God to do the work. And then number five, he tells us in verse 20 that he sought especially those who had never heard. Verse 20, he says, Yea, so have I strived to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, 
lest I should build upon another foundation. But as it is written, to whom he was not spoken of, they shall see, and they that have not heard shall understand. The Paul always was looking. He would share with anyone, but he was always looking for those people that had never heard. Now, why? Some have used this as a, a text to say, well, that you should never go and preach Christ in a region where there's already a church or something. I, I don't think that's what Paul's saying at all, because throughout the New Testament times, they were kind of, you know, building on each other's foundations. You know, Paul planted the church in Ephesus. John spent time pastoring there. He would constantly send different people to go and to, to work there and to build up the church. So that, that's not necessarily what he's saying. But why would Paul say this, that he strove to preach not where Christ was named? Well, two reasons I suggest to you is number one is to give place for germination. What do you mean? Well, I I know that sometimes you share Christ with someone. And at first, you know, maybe they don't respond. Maybe they don't get saved. And they, they heard what you said. They took it to heart, but they don't respond. And it might take a couple of years before they do. I visited recently, well, this is going back five, maybe five years now. And uh, I got a call from someone that I know in Rochester, and, and she said, I have a nephew that lives in Peekskill that jumped out in front of a car on purpose. And he survived, and he's in the hospital. Would you go talk to him? And I said, okay, and I was scared to death because, you know, that's just kind of one of those things. Like, what are you going to, what are you walking into? So I went in, and I opened up the, the room, and I came in, and I saw this kid, literally a, a kid and a teenager sitting there in the bed all banged up, and he saw me with the Bible in his hand, and I said, hey, I know your Aunt Brenda, and I, I, I came here to, uh, to, to share with you, you know, about Jesus. And he looked at me, and he goes, other people have tried, and it hasn't worked for them, but go ahead, give it your best shot. <laughs> and I thought, oh, this is going to be fun, you know. <laughs> so I took the time, and I, I was already out there, so I took him through, and I took him through the Romans Road and explained salvation to him, and then I left. And that was it. Until about maybe a month ago, I got an email. Actually, I got a friend request on Facebook from this kid that I don't know. So I refused it. He came back and refused it again. Then I got a call from his aunt. Hey, this guy's trying to friend you on Facebook. He got saved. Radically saved, she said. In fact, he was here in church uh, maybe three weeks ago. You know, It takes time sometimes. You share with someone. You sow the seed and it takes time. It takes time for them to stew it over. It takes time for life to blindside them a little bit. But eventually that seed comes. And what happens is that if someone's already shared Christ with someone, there's a seed that's germinating. There's something that's happening. And you could sometimes confuse them. And I've seen this happen where someone is someone's praying for someone, someone's sharing with someone. And then they find out that you're a Christian. They start asking you questions. And they always want to talk about the fences. What do you think about baptism? What do you think about tongues? What do you think about this? And if you start, oh, well, this is what I think about that, then you're sowing all kinds of confusion in their mind. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't speak to them, that don't talk to anybody. This is what I'm saying, is that Paul said, I like it when there's someone who's never heard about Christ. That's the best because they just have an openness. They have a response. He says, that's where I strive to preach. I like to, to look at those things. I don't want to con- bring confusion or discouragement or frustration. And then he finishes this little, this little instruction that he's giving to us in verse 22 by telling us that there's plenty of work to do. He says in verse 22, for which cause also I have been much hindered from coming to you. 
A 1,400-mile congregation is what the Apostle Paul had. It's interesting to me that Jesus said, lift up your eyes. Don't say that there's four months and then there's the harvest. He said, but lift up your eyes because the harvest is plenty. And there's plenty of work for us to do. He said it was so intense, this evangelistic ministry, this church planting season of my life, that I haven't been able to come to you that I've desired to because I've been too busy with the work that God has me doing right where I am. You would be amazed at the amount of ministry that is right in front of your face. In, in your workplace, even in your home, in your neighborhood, in your circle of friends, in your extended family. The amount of things that God could be doing if we would step out and say, God, you've called me to do this. God, you've anointed me. And Lord, you want to use me. And so, Lord, please, you'll find that there's more work to do in your little sphere of influence than, you know, a million. Many people, they want to go off to the mission field. They say, oh, God's called me. I'm going to be a missionary. And the first question that you ask is, well, who have you affected at home? Well, they say, well, that's why I want to be a missionary, because I'm not very effective at home. I remember Lloyd Pulley said one time, listen, if your faith doesn't work at home, don't export it. (laughs) The proof of your effectiveness somewhere else is going to be in the effectiveness of it right where you are. Jesus said two things. He said, don't, no one lights a candle and then hides it under a bushel. Or the other one he said was no one lights a candle and hides it under a bed. The two places, the bed is in the home, the bushel is the workplace. And yet, isn't it amazing that that's the place where most people hide their light the most? They hide their light at home. Oh, I I just keep it quiet at home. It's way too tense when that comes up, that issue, that topic. Or at work, hey, religion and politics, off limits. We don't talk about those things. That's sacred territory. That's sacred ground. We don't do it. But Jesus said, you don't light a candle and then hide it under the bushel or hide it under the bed, but you put it out for everyone to see. And you'll be amazed at what God does with you as you step out and allow him to use you in that way. We're going to close here and we'll finish uh, the book of Romans next week as Paul just finishes. Read ahead. He talks to them about the plans that he has the desires that he, he, he hopes that God will do in, in the days coming. And then he greets the church, uh, many of them by name, and gives them some final benedictions uh, as he closes his epistle. But as we close, the Bible says that he that winneth souls is wise. He that winneth souls is wise. The Lord spoke to the prophet Daniel and he said that they that turn many to righteousness will shine like the stars of heaven forever. That there's a special reward for those that go out of their way to win someone into a relationship with Christ. But understand that as you take this commission, this call that God has given, Brad, you can come. But that people aren't interested in your religion. They don't care about if it's right or wrong for you to chew gum while you're in church. Or the way that you dress or what's the proper code. Or if a cigarette is sin. Or what about a foul word that comes out of your mouth. None of that matters to anybody because they don't care about your religion. But what they need is a relationship with Jesus Christ. A couple of days ago I was on a job and um, I'm not going to go into the whole rules thing you know, with you. But you've got to wear a harness you know, in, in most instances. And uh, pretty soon you'll have to wear a bubble because... Uh, 
the insurance companies will require it, you know. But, but I was out on this roof, and I didn't have my harness tied off. I had it on, but I didn't have it tied off. And the safety officer came out, and he, he was in the doorway. And he said, he said, he said, Nick, he goes, you're not tied off. And, and I was walking in, you know, so it was kind of like a legitimate not tied off because you can't walk somewhere if you're, you know, whatever, this whole thing. But, but all that to say this is as I was talking to this guy, he was shaking. He was visibly shaking. His hands were shaking. His voice was quaking as he talked to me. And he said, Nick, Nick, you, you gotta, you gotta be tied off. You, you gotta, you just gotta be tied off. And, and I was thinking to myself, you know, what's, the, and I said, what's, what's, uh, what's the issue? And he goes, I almost lost my job a week ago. And he, it was because someone wasn't tied off and he didn't throw him off the job and someone was watching and this whole thing. But as he was there and I could hear the fear in his voice, I could see it in his eyes that this man was terrified of losing his job. And I, my heart broke as I was just watching him there as he was shaking the fear that he had over the fact that he might just lose his job. And I didn't think to myself, well, you know what you need is a Calvary Chapel. I thought, you need Jesus Christ. You need to know the true and the living God. You need to know the Savior who looks and he says, be anxious for nothing. Take no anxious thought. But by prayer and supplication, make your requests known to God. You need to know the Savior that says that he considers your frame, that he knows that you're just dust. That he, as a father, pities his children, so the Lord pities those that fear him. That which of you, if your son asks for you for a stone, will you get or a, a piece of bread, will you give him a stone? Or if he asks for an egg, you'll give him a scorpion. Well, how much more will your heavenly Father not give good gifts to those that ask? You need to know the Savior. See, he doesn't care about religion, but he needs a relationship with Christ. And Jesus hasn't called us into ritual, but he's invited us into a relationship with himself. And it's in that relationship with Jesus as we experience his presence in our lives that there we'll find fruit. There is where we're going to find the peace and the joy. That's where we're going to find the life. Not in the ritual of church going or Bible study, but in the relationship that we have. And my prayer, and even as I was coming here tonight, I was thinking, you know, I, I don't know why all of the people that are coming here tonight are coming. But I so hope, I so hope, that they're coming because they have that cry within their heart, Lord, we would see Jesus. That I'm going tonight because I want to experience Christ. I don't want more information. I don't need to know more theology. I don't need a Bible study, but I need you, Jesus. And if through the word that's shared or the worship that's offered or the fellowship that's enjoyed, Lord, if in some way I could see you or taste you, then that person's going to leave here tonight blessed and filled. Because that's the reason why we're here. That's the message that we bear. It's not come to church. Come to this ritual. Come look at the designer fence that we've made as this Calvary Chapel crew. It's come to Christ and live. That's what God wants for us. So may God fill you with wisdom. May he fill you with light and the power of the Spirit. May he fill you with a real relationship with him. And that as you go, you might find the power of a spirit and the love of Christ emanating out of you in such a way that you can share it and give it away to others. So that you might say like Paul, I want to do this, I want to do that, but I'm so hindered by the amount of ministry that I find going on within my life. May God give us wisdom. May he fill us and refresh us. In Jesus' name, let's all stand.